On June 18, 1988, Mark Vincent went to the Wallingford Police Station to report that his 12-year-old daughter Doreen had run away from 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road on June 15th. It took Mark's ex-wife Donna about one hour to convince him to go to the police. When Donna arrived at the house, Mark tried to act as though Donna knew where Doreen was. He even made Donna call her mom in Florida to prove it and stalled as much as he could to come up with a story to tell police. We believe Doreen went missing on June 12th. We'll explain why in a future episode. Now, the biggest red flag on June 18th was Mark didn't seem concerned about Doreen's disappearance at all. Instead, he lied, and so did his wife, Sharon, to the police, to the media, and to anyone who would listen. Then Mark disappeared four months later, and the police didn't know his whereabouts as the case grew cold. Today's featured guest was one of Mark's girlfriend after he left Sharon in November of 1988 and was with Mark on the day the warrants were served on his truck and several homes in July of 1989. She's never spoken to the Wallingford police. Part two of her incredible story is next. This is episode 11 of season two of Faded Out. I'm Joe Aguirre, the executive producer. I'll be joined by Jessica Fritz Aguirre, the lead investigator. Sarah Dimio will have a season one update and the Johnny Gosh case coming up Tuesday, April 23rd. And we'll be back on next week's episode. This episode will feature Teresa Lyon, a woman who's had quite a history with Mark Vincent she dated him at the age of 18 back in 1978, and again in 1988 as a 28-year-old. She was coming out of bad relationships both times and was ripe for the picking. I may have offended her last week when I said I didn't think she was a real person. What I meant was I couldn't believe someone with such intimate knowledge of this case would be unknown to law enforcement and to the media. The stories and details offered were so accurate I thought she may have been someone looking to get her 15 minutes, but Jessica fritz Aguirre, lead investigator, vetted out all the info Teresa gave us, and it all checked out. We're very careful to only release information we can prove to be fact. We thank Teresa, she's very brave for coming forward, and her daughter expressed concern for her mom and for us, but Teresa just wants to solve this case, and she's not afraid of anybody. Yeah, I asked her about it, because uh, Teresa likes to call herself a shitster. That's one of her favorite phrases, and, you know, as a fellow shitster, I kind of like it myself, but she made very clear to me that she has a license to carry and, um, and a knife. And she told me if the gun doesn't take care of things, then the knife will. <laughs> so, you know, taking a page out of her book, I got pepper spray. We all should have it. But, um, you know, she definitely was one of the more interesting and fun characters to vet. So she told me that she had met with a Meriden police officer in Naugatuck. She didn't remember the guy's name, but she did remember that he was a friend of her husband's. Teresa and her husband are divorced. So I call the husband up. His new wife answers. Lovely people. This woman insists, as most people that I call do right out of the gate, that I must be some bogus sham or something. I'm trying to get information. This is a trick. Amazing they all answer on the first ring, too, though. 
They do. They love it. <laughs> so I start talking to her and she says, uh, Teresa's ex-husband's new wife. He didn't have anything to do with a missing girl. I don't know what you're talking about. This doesn't sound right. And I said, uh, your husband used to be married to a woman named Teresa Lyon and her whole attitude changed. And she started laughing. She's like, oh, Jesus, what Teresa do now? So we have a... <laughs> That's great. She's chuckling, right? I said, I got to talk to your husband. She gets her husband on the line. Husband confirms everything. Husband says the guy's name. Husband says that he remembers he used to work in the Meriden Missing Persons Department. So after I spoke to the husband, or the ex-husband, I called Teresa back um, with a name, which was John Ragazzi. I thought it was John, yeah. Yep. John Ragazzi, right. Oh, he died because he was the one that was handling the case. He's the one that you might want to look into because he's the one that I met. He is the one that I met, I told you about. In Naugatuck, right? <laughs> no, I think he was Meriden. I think he was Meriden. Okay, okay. Because, well, he passed away, but yeah, it was so funny because Dave was like, oh, I did, <laughs> I did know a John Ragazzi and blah, blah, blah. He's like, but I don't know how Teresa would know that. I said, well, she did. And then... Um, when I was done on the phone talking to him, I said, you know, thank you for your help. He said, I don't know anything. He goes, I don't even know how she would get that number. I said, okay, but thank you for verifying. There was a guy with Meriden that you knew. And then his wife got on the phone and she's like, what is this case about? Who is this girl? Why didn't he report her missing? And I said, you know, thank you for taking my call. I'm sorry to call late. I hope that you, um, you don't mind getting a call about your husband's ex-wife. And she goes, oh, I know Teresa. It's totally fine. And I was like, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. She, she told me once, I can't even not like you. She goes, I like you. Because <laughs> she, she was married to the, my ex-husband. Okay? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then I met him, and then we got married. I had a baby. And then years later, they just got back together and remarried. Oh, they got back. So, so he was married to oh. her, got divorced, married you. Okay, okay. He was married to her, this woman, Carol, that you talked to, and then he divorced. And then um, we met, we married, we had a child. And then we divorced eight years later, and, you know, he did his thing, and probably, oh, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years ago, he remarried. And, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, I, I'll tell you, it's strange how things, like, these things that I could remember. So she checked out from a personal standpoint. She had a connection to a police officer, and she just wanted to help Mark find his daughter. Another part of the vetting process was talking about Mark's family and verifying if Teresa's info matched up. And Jessica asked her if she knew Jay Vincent, Mark's brother. I don't think he even remember me. Like I said, he didn't uh, bring me around his family much. We wanted to see if Jay remembered Doreen, so I called Jay last night. And when I said who I was and what I was looking into, I mean, he made it sound like I had punched him in the gut. Like, you could hear him go like, oh, and then really? he said, yeah, he said, um, this is totally out of the blue. Who are you? Why are you calling me? And then he said, I can't talk to you about this right now. And then he hung up on me. So, you know what? Here's the thing. I mean, he lost a niece. I understand that. I understand the reaction. But, you know. If your brother's innocent, I don't know, maybe say that, but hung up the phone fast. Yeah, well, there you go, because somebody knows something, and nobody wants to face anybody because they might have that, 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 that slim chance something's going to break down. You know, whether it was accidental, let's say he pushed her through a window, you know, and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, a piece of glass jacked through her. You know what I'm saying? 
No, I just wouldn't put past them. But, you know, I mean, she was a little thing. You know, she wasn't a, you know, a husky little girl. And he was a strong man. People who know Mark best don't think he would have hurt his daughter on purpose. And we've talked about this often, that even though he's the prime suspect in Doreen's disappearance, he's not a physically violent man. Yeah, you guys have heard us talk about this multiple times. You know, he never is physically violent with people. Um, we've listed a lot of women on this podcast with whom Mark had relationships. Donna, Teresa, Roseanne, Doreen, uh, Debbie, Carol. And I, I just want to stress he never actively hurt someone. Now, coming up in the show, we'll have interviews as well with men who say the same thing. But it always comes up organically in the conversation. Mark is not going to punch you in your face or try to hurt you in any, any way. Mark exhibits many signs of a sociopath. He isolates people, he's dishonest, and he's controlling. He doesn't have a lot of friends, and he doesn't share a lot. You asked Teresa about his relationship with his family. His family was always kept like a secret. I don't know, he just never, he never would involve me. Both times, actually. The second time, I don't think I even met anybody. But the first time, you know, he was probably had left Donna, had the baby. He was off, you know, in between all these relationships, which he just kept on doing his whole life. You know, here he's living with Sharon. The kid's running away. He's moving in with Roseanne, and he's coming in with me. Mm, so, and they, yeah, the truck's gone, and he's metal detecting, and... One of my major questions is, if Mark was missing at that time, why didn't they have an APB for his truck? Who knows who, you know? What's going on? It's like, who's hiding something? Which one? Is it the authorities? Is it, I mean, it's all written all over the wall. Come on, I'm sorry. Without them not wanting to even open up the case after 30 years, not even wanting to be involved? No, I don't think so. Well, it doesn't put him, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. As of today, the Wallingford police have still not spoken to Teresa Lyon, who went as so far as to call them up, only to be rushed off the phone. We told the police about her, gave them her contact info, and Jessica, she decided she wanted to share this info with you. I think she wants to share it with everybody. I mean, this is a person who's carrying this around as a wound. This little girl that she met once you know, has gone missing. She's going to talk to anybody she can. If it's not the police, it might be us. Now, I told you the last time that the police told her that it was a journalistic error that had been published, that uh, they didn't know where Mark was for months at a time. I asked the police why they would have told her something like that. That doesn't sound right, especially if you're in the business of getting information. One of the detectives told me, well, maybe we did that as an investigative technique. Maybe we let Mark think that he was missing, but he was really on his radar. Not only is that one of the worst investigative techniques I've ever heard of and doesn't make any sense, but again, it's in the warrant that he was missing all that time. It also drastically failed. <laughs> now, when the warrants were served in July of 1989, Mark had his truck taken so it could be searched. Teresa wasn't aware of that, but you asked her about his vehicle. I wanted to ask you about the truck. So when the DEP officer describes the truck, he was so detailed and he thought it was Mark's truck so much that they actually brought him along to look at Mark's truck when it was seized and they all looked at it together. The DEP guy swears it was Mark's truck, right? But Mark just did his Mark thing where he was like, nope, not me, or didn't say anything. 
They said that it had a built-in toolbox that he had sort of like jury-rigged on the back of the truck. Do you remember that? Oh my God, it's so, I can't. Because I didn't really, I didn't really see the truck. I don't even think I drove in it. He never parked down in the driveway. He always parked up on top. So let's say I'm at work, he's at home, and then I come home, he takes off. Or, you know, I never really saw any of the vehicles except mine that he always used for that time, for that brief time that we were together. Because he didn't have a vehicle. The only thing maybe I could think is it was it like a yellowish old pickup, Ford pickup. It was brown, but I've yeah. also heard people say gold. So, you know, gold, yellow, brown. That truck was seen at Huntington State Park uh, in Bethel by a park ranger. We don't know why he was out there. The truck was identified and recognized by the ranger. They asked Mark about it, and he did what Mark does. He just didn't admit to it. Well, the man with the truck also matched Mark's description. What's always bothered me about this story, I mean, we know from talking to the police that the DEP was not aware that Mark should be looked at or that truck should be tagged in any way. But once the person is identified bringing something into the forest and runs into the forest, the DEP officer stayed long enough to check out the truck. I think Detective Hanley from Wallingford said at one point that he was obsessed with the truck. Takes all the information down and then leaves so that the person hiding in the woods gets the chance to come out later and take the truck. I've checked with DEP. Uh, those records have been expunged and um, you know, Wallingford doesn't have anything that they're willing to share with me on it at this time. So the Meriden police and specifically John Bergazzi, are the only law enforcement who have ever spoken to Teresa Lyon. And you asked her, Jess, if at any point after Mark was arrested on the gun charge, if the Wallingford police reached out with any questions. No, I just met with John. I told you I met with some of those detectives down in, at the old dog at Tuck Bailey Mall. He came to my apartment once for the phone bill, but nobody took me in, nobody interviewed me, nobody said shit. Because if they told me at the beginning, before I got him out of my place, maybe, maybe, maybe I would have been more in tune of what was, my, what was going on. But, you know, like all these things that you're throwing at me, they're very relevant right now, but to me, that back then... Oh, God. Yeah, truck, okay, big deal. I only briefly saw it for maybe 30 seconds. Yeah, they told me back then I would have probably given them better answers, but they never asked me anything. But, you know, that's just little things, and they never... It was like in and out, in and out. We don't know what happened to the phone bill that John Ragazzi took. We do know they were able to tie that to the number for Roseanne Poloni. And then Teresa decided she wasn't done detectiving, which is what she does. She took a number that had been called often off the phone bill and just cold called it, really. So that's how she was able to come across Roseanne and then have that tete-a-tete in the diner about Mark. You asked Teresa about her phone calls with Meriden Police Detective John Ragazzi in the meeting they had at the Naugatuck Mall this weighs on this poor woman's mind, even to this day. I could actually remember our conversation. I asked, well, I, I didn't even hold a call. I just called Meriden's police station, asked for John Ragazzi. He wasn't in the office. They, I said, okay, well, I mean, my name is Teresa. My ex-husband's Dave is a good friend, and I'm calling on a report of a missing child. Her name is Doreen Vincent. Well, all of a sudden, that's when everything blew. You know, back then, don't forget, no cell phones or anything. I'm at work, so they're calling my work number, and that's when I had left work because I had to go down and see them down at the mall. That was it. 
And it was too early, I think. Uh, everything was happening too fast, but they didn't know. No interview, no police, no questioning. I didn't even exist. Teresa Lyon knows where Mark was for a lot of the time that the Wallingford police couldn't account for his whereabouts. He used her car while his was in police possession, and she was literally with him when the warrants got served. You could understand why she feels like she didn't exist in the eyes of the police. Yeah, that's exactly right. But I think a lot of people here have felt like they never existed in the eyes of the police. I mean, uh, Debbie, Carol, and Donna still feel that way. I-, I can't imagine what that feels like. As in no formal interview. There was there was some questions, but never really a sit-down nope. interview where you asked the whole story. Now, I need information on which came first, but there were two meetings with Ugazi. One was at the Naugatuck Valley Mall, and the other one was him coming to her apartment to get her phone bill, which had to be at a specific time and place because the phone bill only got delivered once a month, and she had to have it held back by the neighbor so that John Ragazzi could get his hands on it. That's it. Remember, because this comes into play, this is a Meriden detective. Now, Meriden and Wallingford are, uh, you know, they're cities that touch. But they're certainly not the same jurisdiction at all. So Teresa knew Mark was bad news and she hatched herself a little plan to get Mark to no longer feel safe with her. Mark had been using her home as sort of a safe house. Teresa was now aware of what he was accused of. And so she set her plan in motion. He'd take off in the middle of the night, not in the middle of the night, like around nine o'clock. He goes, I gotta I got, I got go. I'm going to go. And um, he goes, I got to give a quote on, on this job I'm going to be doing. Like, really? Yeah, you know, like my ex-husband, he, he's, he's going to go out fishing at midnight all dressed up. And, yeah, okay, goodbye. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's when it was coming to the end. And I told him, I said, you know, I don't know. I feel like I'm being watched. I'm always like seeing these detective cars scaring him, scaring him enough to get the hell out of my place. Which he did. He ended up doing. You know, I'm glad I used you. Now, where he went after that, I don't know. So did you, is that how you? It wasn't with his girlfriend. And obviously it wasn't with Sharon and Donna. Where he went, probably to mommy's. That's all he runs to is mommy's. Okay. How, how did you know that he was running to mommy's? When Doreen went missing and he was visiting his mother, he never even told his mother she was missing, even though she didn't have a relationship with his daughter. Mark and his mom, Lori, who is now deceased, had stopped talking before her death, but apparently, Jazz, it was for something else. As if what happened to Doreen wasn't the worst thing this guy could ever do. It was there was yet another situation, I guess, that was the 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 tipping point for mom. Yeah, but I've gotten this sense from talking to a lot of people who know Mark from way back. Um, and Aunt Debbie can speak on this um, fairly fairly um, frankly. She said she wants to ask Mark's mom why she hated her son so much. I mean. She said it was really never a tight relationship. Mark's mother had four other children that seemed like, you know, a good, normal family unit. And then Mark was always her black sheep. So whether it was from something that happened before Doreen went missing or something that happened after Doreen went missing, you know, they didn't really have a strong relationship the entire time. That was part of the plan to get rid of Mark. John Ragazzi and the Meriden police warned Teresa that he was a bad man. She has a very good memory, but when she brought this up, I thought she was crazy. She isn't at all. He said that he practiced Satanism when he was in prison. 
I don't know when he was in prison. Maybe it was back when he burned the disco down. I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, John fell off the face of the earth because Mark still lived with me for quite some time because he had, Mark had gotten his DUI, and I think that was after the fact. Things were starting to spiral out of control. Oh, I'm sure. This cheese was coming off the cracker, <laughs> and I was losing myself in all this big mess here. What's going on? And, and, and him, I'm meeting his ex-girlfriend, and, and he's mysteriously disappearing with my metal detector. And I have detectives meeting me behind vacant buildings, and I got detectives in my house. And nobody tells me nothing. To be fair, no matter what you think of Mark Vincent, uh, we have not seen any evidence that he was ever a Satanist. He is a born-again Christian, and he works with at-risk teens. We'll eventually tell you more about that group because lots of people are talking. And we're confused as to why Meriden was questioning suspects in a missing persons case from Wallingford and why the info Teresa Lyon reported seemingly never made it to that department. And it's a serious problem either way. Well, let's let's break this down. I think this deserves a lot of uh, of detail. You stole my line, Joe. To be fair, no one's ever said Mark's a Satanist. I mean... His cheese might be slipping off of his cracker, but that's neither here nor there. Teresa has said the Satanism thing from day one. And I just, you know, you're interviewing people and you don't want to just take something that they say and automatically assume that it's the truth or a lie. You want to sit on it. You want to ruminate on it. And the Satanism thing kept bothering me because it didn't make any sense. This guy has been a born-again Christian from, I believe, 74, 75, when Doreen was born. Mark was in jail when Doreen was born, by the way. He was let out for her birth. So Satanism never really came into it. But, Joe, remember who's telling Teresa that Mark is a Satanist and she has to get away from him? John Ragazzi. So Teresa explained to me that when she was 28 back in 1989... She didn't know who to call. She thought, okay, I have a resource. I know a guy in the Meriden Missing Persons Department. I will call him up. I don't know, Joe. What do you think should have been the immediate response to the Meriden Missing Persons Department receiving a call on a missing girl from Wallingford? Probably you just call the Wallingford PD and you're like, hey, got some great info for you guys. Could be a real game changer. So go with me here on this for a second. Meriden gets this information. Now, we can assume that one of two things happened. They either passed the information on to the Wallingford Police Department, which is troublesome because if they did, why didn't the Wallingford Police Department talk to Teresa? Why are they telling me now that they never knew of Teresa? All these things. But if the Meriden Police Department didn't pass it on to the Wallingford Police Department, yeah. that's also troublesome. I don't understand. So what you've got, and again, remember that this is a different jurisdiction. Meriden and Wallingford are different jurisdictions. Meriden... And John Ragazzi called Teresa and say, meet us down by the Naugatuck Valley Mall. Now, for those of you who are not local, Meriden and Naugatuck are not close. How far would you say, Joe? That's probably a good 40 minutes. So that's what I was going to say. So Meriden drives down to Naugatuck to interview her behind the mall in the parking lot. When I spoke to the Wallingford about this recently, they 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 kind of poo-pooed it and they said, that doesn't make any sense. One jurisdiction wouldn't investigate jurisdictions jurisdiction two's case one jurisdiction wouldn't investigate jurisdiction two's case and then head to jurisdiction three to do detective work that doesn't make sense and i'm trying to figure out why now you asked Teresa about another story that the wallingford police really should know more about 
Mark even admitted to me via text that he was in the park, but he took Teresa's metal detector. He went to Huntington State Park, and it got even more suspicious when he returned with Teresa's car. Hey, I have a quick question. Remember when you said he detailed your car? Was he dirty when he came back from that? He had a red T-shirt on and jeans. He didn't seem dirty. He was always clean. You know, Mark, was a, he was a fetish with uh, body cleanliness. Jesus, if you get a spot, go take a shower. That kind. So, remember, it was a red T-shirt, his jeans. He had his dark hair, sunglasses on. He had that Cheshire smile grin on. I, you know, I was so mad that I, he was late that I'm like, I don't care about the car. I want to go home. I can't. I can't take this dude anymore. I can't. And I didn't even love him. Did he say where he was taking the metal detector? Did he say any specific place? No, he says, I'm going to go. No, he, it was that Sunday after he left with the kids on Saturday. Oh, kids, I have no idea. Maybe Sharon's. Yeah, I was pissed off because it was a beautiful Sunday. And I'm like, well, not that I'm going to force myself to go. I don't force myself to do anything that people don't want you to do. He says, no, I want to go out and clear my head. You know, like almost throwing out their sympathy cards. You know, that, like, let me, I just need to clear my head. I got to get the fog out. They're always talking about the fog. Uh, and then he left. He took my hand. He left. He came back hours later, like hours. He probably left like at 10 o'clock in the morning, came back 4 or 5 in the afternoon. He could have been with Roseanne. He could have been with Kathy. Or he could have been with Sharon. We don't know. He never said, and I'm sorry that I was so mad at because he was so late. But actually, it was like quarter to 4. I get out of work at 2.30. It was quarter to 4. He came pick me up. So that was very disrespectful. Oh, yeah, uh, he, he left you at the training school, right? Yeah, that's when I was working. I used to work in Cottage 30. She's a very accurate description of Mark and what he was wearing because it was one of those moments that just stood out in her mind in life. Your boyfriend shows up all cleaned up in a different outfit than what he left in. You notice that, and your car, which wasn't in need of cleaning, has been completely detailed. Well, he told her he wanted to go to Huntington State Park. I guess jury's still out on whether his kids are with him, because if you're clearing your head, you're not going to take like a two and three-year-old metal detecting, right? Probably not. They were three and four at that time, so let's rule that out. With Paul and Sarah probably not out metal detecting with Mark. So assume that he's out on his own with the metal detector. Various sources say that he has been seen um, in certain areas at certain times. He was sighted there a year earlier in late summer, early fall, carrying something with his arms straight out like he was carrying a carpet or a kid, in Detective Hanley's words. He's there a lot. One of the police officers that I'm in touch with described it as his childhood playground. If you take Mark's mother's house and you Google map it, it puts you right up against Huntington State Park. I mean, he used to take Debbie and Carol there and Donna and go looking for tadpoles and stuff when they were young. If you take Georgia Lewis's house in Reading and you Google map that, that's also right on the verge of Huntington State Park. So again, I don't think that she's there, Joe, but I do think there's something there. I think there's a comforter or a gun or a box holding stuff. I, you know me, I keep coming back to this. What is in the that park? I've got so many thoughts on I that. I am like boiling over with thoughts. <laughs> I can't. Teresa had a message she wanted to convey through this show because she's outraged that a little girl could go missing for 31 years. And if it wasn't for a bunch of meddling kids, no one would have ever looked at this case again. You know what? I'm getting pissed because nobody's talking to me. The ones that should be talking to me aren't talking to me. I almost, I started typing. I was going to put some on your page. 
And I'm like, no, leave it alone because just don't just shut your mouth. And I did. Well, you, well, just let's... to let the public be aware. What about parents that have fucking missing kids, Jessica? How would they like to know that, you know, people are calling up and, and got information, but the cops are just mishandling it? Yeah, let the public be aware of that. I hate to be the mother that's missing their child and listens to this podcast. Oh, yes, I would. I'd be very, very upset, and I would be making phone calls. I, my child was missing, and I heard this story. I would be making phone calls. Teresa has a lot of guilt about what happened. We've seen it with Donna and her family. If only we did things differently or, or asked questions. And I understand why they feel that way. And it makes it all the more shocking and ironic that Mark doesn't feel guilty about any of this. I will once again state for the record that I have requested Mark Vinton's cooperation in this investigation on a couple of occasions. He's told me we can't help and has refused to talk with us in a formal setting. Now, Jessica, you made a pretty good observation about how Doreen was portrayed in the media. You know what? A lot of the articles that I read about her from that time, they considered her like trash. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's like she was a young, cute 12-year-old girl. What is everybody doing? Doesn't anybody want to know what happened? No, they don't. I'll tell you what side of the family don't want to know what happened, and that's Mark's side. His family sits. If you called my one of my family members to talk about my daughter missing or whatever, they they would they he would sit for hours with them. Mark is pretty much the reason the case was dismissed because he reported her as a runaway. He exaggerated a previous experience, then disappeared for several months. It's like OJ looking for Nicole's killer on the Florida golf courses. Yeah, I mean, when we started investigating, I'm reading the articles, and this is before we talked to Donna and the family, and what they say is, she's a runaway, she's a runaway, she's a chronic runaway. They, One detective even goes into a hypothetical uh, fantasy about what she might be doing out on the streets. Uh, she might be having sex for money, or she might be selling drugs. I mean, this was like 10 days after she Yeah, that missing. guy got like deep into he what he really... thought was going on. It was weird. It was, yeah, it was, it was a very strange situation. Remember, too, she was only in Wallingford for maximum 10 days before she went missing. She wasn't known to the community, and, and that might explain a lot as well. But I thought she had run away multiple times. Turns out, I think it was once, maybe twice, which is a lot if you're a parent. It's worrisome. She went straight. Yeah, but she didn't really well, run away. She went away. to her mother's house. And the reason given to me for that was because she was sort of shirking the born again, very strict Christian attitudes, dress and manner that they were pressing on her. You know, she's 12. She's almost 13 years old. There was another instance where, and we can talk about this on future episodes. I mean, Donna went and got her at school and sent her to Florida to be with Jane, to be with Donna's mom. Is that the best situation? Absolutely not. But if you read the articles, Mark acts like she is a chronic runaway. Now, when I went and met with the Wallingford police for the first time, I mean, I have a notebook. I take notes on everything. The very first words written in my notebook from that meeting with Wallingford was chronic runaway because that came out of their mouth immediately. It's just not true. False narrative. Yeah, and people are still buying it, even though I'm there in their faces telling them that these things 
are not true. And I just, it's hard to change it. When you read the articles, it's almost like, well, she, I think the detective who goes into detail about what she could be doing to make a living on the streets, he goes into, oh, she might be in New York. She might be in Bridgeport. At this time, she could really be anywhere. Well, yeah, that she could be anywhere. You're a detective. Follow the clues and find her. That's your job. Well, same thing with June 15th. That is the day that everyone assumes is the day this kid went missing. Maybe not. Maybe yeah, not. And we're going to obviously got a whole episode coming up focused around that. Uh, Teresa wanted to help Mark find his daughter. She believed Doreen ran away because that's what Mark had led everyone to believe. And there's not one piece of evidence to indicate that Doreen ever left 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road in Wallingford. Donna and her family were staking out houses, hanging up posters all over the place. Mark was lying low. Here's what he told Teresa was the reason why he sat out the search. He says, well, why should I? He goes, well, they're taking over. They took over. They're doing. He would, you know, just, you could tell by the look in his eyes that you don't even go there. I'm like, all right. Well, he goes, well, what more do you want me to do? Um, nothing. Not, not a, nothing. Uh, I don't know. And I'm scratching my head like, okay, want a beer? I don't know. <laughs> did you did you ever get a sense? Remember, you said that he always wanted to keep his head clear, like not a lot of drugs or alcohol or no addiction problems, because was that something he said to you? I want to keep my head clear. Yeah. Yeah. He goes, I need to have a clear head. Uh, I don't care. I like to be sometimes out of my head, especially <laughs> when I'm with you. But I didn't. I said, oh, that's good. You know, that's I, OK. That's good. You know, I mean, especially yeah. people that are addicts. And it's, it's a good attitude to have. But. You're not. You're not. A, you're not an addict. So, I mean, he go out and have a few drinks. He, I think I saw him get drunk once. The worst part of this whole thing is that Teresa really wanted her second go around with Mark to go better. She felt terrible for him, and she wanted to help him. And it was ten years later, she reached out to the Maryland police basically to gain his affection, which was a pretty bad plan. I called this guy. Just because I got back involved with Mark, and you know, maybe a little part of me was going to say like, hey, look what I'm doing for you. I'm helping you find your daughter. And I know someone that works in the missing children's department. How cool am I? You know, maybe that little part. So that's when I did call. Mark was not impressed. Apparently... Nobody was impressed. One of the things we have found in our investigation of Mark Vincent is that he is not physically controlling, just mentally controlling. This is just the way this guy operates. Well, again, here's some stuff off the top of my head from the women that I've spoken to. Teresa Lyon, he's driving her down, you know, from the Milford Highlight at ridiculous speed. She thinks he's going to kill her in the car. He's putting live snakes in Roseanne Poloni's drawers. Uh, he's shooting a gun passed on his head never laying his hand on her but he's going to shoot a gun to get her under his control uh there's another story that i have from Teresa where he actually met her out in the parking lot for a date but he was hiding behind a car and he came out with a nylon on his head what yeah. I, I don't even know that one. yeah that's a yeah he he jumped out you know and that's a joke you know i'm wearing a nylon on my head there's there's countless stories like this so again you know i have to laugh but the aerosol can of flame toward the face that might not be a true story, okay? The woman that I spoke to definitely, she wants me to believe it's not a true story for whatever reason, but <laughs> doesn't it fit into the picture of the person that we've come to know? You can take it or leave it. You asked Teresa Lyon about Mark's manipulating and controlling women, and she gave quite an interesting response that probably needs its own episode. He does it for his ego. I don't 
don't, he doesn't, I don't think he finds women attractive in the sense of a sexual relationship, to be honest with you, from the both times, from when I was a wee little child at 18 all the way up until 28, whatever. There's no, 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 so, no, no. He has other motives. I don't know what they are, but he has other motives. He, he doesn't have any compassion. He doesn't have any, there was never, I, I, never a touch or anything that, uh, nothing, nothing, nothing. Jess, what do you make of that? Now, we've had countless conversations about this man and why and how his brain operates. I've had several interesting communications with him. L- lay it on us. What is your analysis of this? Of him not wanting to touch an adult female? The only person that I've ever heard from anyone that he had any real affection for or it's more of an obsession with is Donna. Donna's always called his idol. He was obsessed with Donna. But remember, she got pregnant when she was 15 and she was 18. Three years is not that big of a difference, but it is when you're 15 and 18. Debbie and Carol, who alleged sexual molestation by Mark, were kids. Sharon, I've heard from people, they didn't have a very warm, loving relationship. It just... I get, I, it's hard for me to get into this guy's mind, but as we try to do so, we put the puzzle together, you know, using what we already know. And it's just what she's saying fits to me. Jess, you and Teresa had an interesting discussion about the particular type of woman Mark seems to target. The kind that work hard and wanted to provide for themselves. And he, they changed the phone number and he took the phone off the wall. Like Joe said, he was counting on Donna never seeing that kid again. Because in 1988, like you said, you can't track somebody down. He goes, how, why do you know that Mark has been in the news? Like, how come he's still around? And we figured out he's basically a grifter who needs women to survive. Exactly. Exactly. Because we're all working women. Did he ever do any of the work in the woman's stay home? Maybe Sharon. I'm not sure, Bob. Oh, please. Donna seemed like a hard worker. I've worked all the time. You well, know? you know, Donna. He never, he, he never had a job. I know he had, was a felon, so it was, I know it's hard for them to get jobs. You know, it was always a woman that had the house, that had this, that had that. You know, I mean, I don't know. Mark has been described as a lot of things, and one of the things I would have never thought I would hear is the word gigolo. I didn't even think that was something a person could actually do. But you and Teresa had quite the chat about that. There's a friend of the family named Georgia Lewis who was a gospel singer. She's a black woman who lived in Reading. Donna said, oh, he used to do all this work for her, and she used to pay him these exorbitant prices. Like, he made her a hamper... And she gave him $100. I said, that doesn't make any sense. She was like, well, he was a carpenter and it was a really nice hamper. So she paid a high price for it. He used to do this, he used to do that for her. She would pay him these really high prices. And I thought, that doesn't sound like it lines up. So the other night when I was speaking to you, the minute you said he was a gigolo, we went to Bethel, we saw this black woman. I was like, oh, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure georgia lewis was a good woman who was just trying to help georgia is an interesting character and Teresa remembered her a little bit she did you know georgia's a fascinating character in her own right she was named louis armstrong's musical godchild 
you know, as Sarah has mentioned before, she had the first um, uh, serialized television show in the United States for a woman, not just a black woman, a woman, period. Her music is great. Her voice is great. But she did have this relationship with Mark. Teresa saying she went to George's house because Mark had to give her a quote and they showed up and she described her as a beautiful, tall black woman in Reading. I showed her a picture of the house. House clears out, of course. Showed up in her negligee in the door and seemed, frankly, pissed off that Teresa was there with Mark. And she said, you know, I, I always got the feeling that Mark was a bit of a gigolo on the side. Now, again, it could be true. Maybe that's just Teresa bullshitting. But put together that with what you know about the person. And here's one more thing, too, right? I don't necessarily agree that he needs women who work hard for themselves. You heard Donna say he didn't want her to get a job. I think she got a job at McDonald's when she was like 16 years old. Um, I never got the sense that Sharon worked. Um, I think he likes a woman kind of, you know, under his thumb. But remember, too, if he is a narcissistic sociopath and I'm not a doctor, but you need women to do things for you for different reasons. He didn't have problems getting a job because he was a felon, because he's a carpenter. He does his own work. Um, so I don't agree with Teresa on that. But I think what he needed from Teresa was a place to hide. One of the worst things that we found in our investigation is the fact that Doreen Vincent, a 12-year-old girl, was, was exhibiting signs of sexual abuse. Uh, we can do an entire episode on that and all of the examples we have, including a classmate who said Doreen claimed to be a professional underwear model who went on shoots in New York City. Seriously, an entire episode. Uh, Jessica and Teresa discussed it, and Teresa really hit the nail on the head. She was also showing a lot of signs of like sexualized behavior, like she was more interested in sex and being naked and maybe masturbation. I mean, she was only 12, so, you know, she was showing a lot of signs of being like sexually um, precocious, I right. guess you want to say. Right, right. Right, and that was his possession, and nobody was going to have her. That's how I always looked at it. He was very possessive. Mark had a thing for young women, and by all accounts, especially from some of the creepy characters who you've interviewed, Jess, his daughter was a very mature and attractive 12, soon-to-be 13-year-old. It's not crazy making the leap from everything we know. But now you fast-forward a year, Doreen's still missing, and Mark has all but moved on. He's left Sharon in November of 1988. He's splitting his time with Roseanne Poloni, who becomes his undoing eventually, and Teresa Lyon. It's July of 1989 when the warrants are served. Mark's mom frantically calls her son while police search her home looking for evidence in Doreen's disappearance. He was up at my dad's putting on a roof. That's what he did all day while I was at work at the training school. I still had my apartment in Naugatuck. So I would go up to my dad's house and my mom's after work. He'd be there working, you know, finishing up. And I, I'm like, I got to go home and shower and, you know, I'm tired. And he says, I'll see you home. And he had come home and I, I don't know, we probably got Chinese or something. And then uh, that's when his mother called my house. He must have given her my Naugatuck number. And he answered it. And then he was, I was in the kitchen area and he was in the kind of keep it quiet. And he said, I'll have to, all right, calm down, calm down. I'll go to the legal 
library tomorrow. I'll get it straightened out. And then he hung up and he says, oh, they're, they're looking for clues for Doreen and they're flipping my sister's clothes all over. I'm like, you know, so it, did, it didn't sound like a warrant to me. It sounded like they're just looking. You know what? I'm stupid. I don't know at that time. I'm still thinking this poor kid has run away. It's hard to believe this woman has never been given the opportunity to tell her story to the police. She has dates and details and might very well be the stupid pebble that gets kicked over and solves the whole damn case. You know I hate that metaphor. <laughs> somebody very close somebody very close to this case with whom I was speaking about it said, uh, you know, who knows? Wallingford Police has been working on this for 31 years, but you and your team might kick over the one stupid pebble that gets this. Oh, really? The stupid pebble? Teresa's like a whole box of rocks, and I love her. Here's all the information that you need. And we've talked about this before, especially in a case where everyone that really knows a lot is dead. I mean, Sharon could really tell us a lot about what happened here. Roseanne Poloni, a lot about what happened here. Teresa is this like huge missing link that no one seems to want to talk to. And I just don't understand. I mean, I'm not doing this for my health, guys. I'm not staying up late nights interviewing people to like, you know, for my blood pressure. Like I'm trying to solve this case. Again, anyone listening to this podcast knows Teresa needs to be spoken to by the Wallingford Police Department. Teresa Lyon is a very brave woman, and we thank her for coming forward. We know there are more people who have information on this case, and we welcome you to contact us. Teresa agreed to be used on the broadcast, but we've interviewed many people who have asked to be kept off the record. There are people close to Mark who are reaching out, and we hope that you continue to be safe and provide any information that you can. Teresa had one final message she'd like to pass along to law enforcement. Put this on the record, and I'm sorry, and I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but this goes out to all the police departments all across the country, and then some. When somebody's calling you that might have, that just might have some one piece of information that can solve a missing child case, you better jump on it. And I don't care how old the case is. That's all I'm saying to you. So when I reached out to all these detectives and sergeants, Nobody calls me back. Well, well, well. Isn't that something? <sighs> okay. That's how stupid I was. Why didn't I call John and say, well, what's going on now? What's happening? Why didn't he call me? I don't know. I guess that's how it plays. Powerful words from Teresa Lyon. I'm Joe McGuire, along with Jessica Fritz McGuire, the lead investigator on this case, who is writing a book about this experience and this case. And we certainly hope it has a great ending. I want to tell this girl's story and her family's story. It deserves to be known. Obviously, obviously, we want to find her. You know, and we're asking people that know anything to reach out to us and provide us with the information that will help find her. But, you know, Faded Out is the perfect name for this podcast. This little girl has been, you know, almost erased from history. And I want to tell that history. Sarah Dimio will have a season one update on the Johnny Gosh case coming up on Tuesday, April 23rd. She'll be back next week with Jessica and me. This was episode 11 of season two of Faded Out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>